Matthew chapter 27, 1 through 10, we're going to be looking at a man who has missed out on salvation. His name is Judas. And his story, a sad story, serves as an instrumental lesson for each one of us. Verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And when Judas, the betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So he took counsel and brought with them, or bought with them, the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then it was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, a price of him by whom, or price of him of whom, uh, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. They gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. It's about in the word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for today. We're thankful for this passage in which it speaks clearly about Judas, a man who missed out on salvation, a man who betrayed you. And we know, Lord, that there's certain effects that our sin had upon this man, which are devastating. And we pray that none of us will face the same eternal effects which this man has. Help us, Lord, to learn from this lesson. Let us take the warnings which are laid out in this passage with seriousness so that we could turn away from our sins and turn to you for salvation. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guilt destroys lives. Guilt is a difficult emotion to deal with. It is an emotion of pain. It's an emotion of sorrow. Many of us have experienced guilt in our lives because we have all done something that results in guilt. Guilt is just a feeling. But what results in guilt actually is sin. It is doing something outside of what we wanted to do or what we expect ourselves to do or doing something that which is wrong in our own estimation. And we cannot change the fact that we have done it. So the consequence of it all is that we experienced guilt. Guilt is something that you might experience in life. You have done something wrong. For example, you have cheated, we have lied, you have stole from somebody. Certainly you can experience guilt as a result of that. You can also experience guilt if you have done something quite serious such as adultery. You commit adultery and you experience guilt as a result of that and there are other things such as not fulfilling a promise which you made to your family, to those who you love, and they come to you and they say, well, didn't you promise us this? Didn't you say that you're going to do that? And the fact that we didn't causes us to feel guilt in our lives. And guilt is a difficult emotion to deal with because it brings such pain, such sorrow. It really incapacitates us in life. There are several examples of guilt, not just in our own lives, but here in Hollywood, because as we step out those doors, we experience and see people experience, with, experience guilt all the time. People who are in the streets, and they experience guilt. People who live here in Hollywood don't want to go back home because they experience guilt. I remember talking to individuals in life, and um, one sec. In life, and, and, and people come to our church and they ask us, hey, can you get in contact with this individual? Can you talk with this individual? We say, of course we can. We see this individual living right here next to our home, next to our church, and, and, and we, we, we know who they are. So can you contact them? Can you get this person to call us back? We say, well, we try to. We will uh, talk to this person and give you their information, and, 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 and perhaps there's a connection that can be made. It could be a, a son, could be a cousin, could be an individual. And we go and talk to this person. This person absolutely do not want to go back to their family. For some reason or the other, this person had left their home, came to Hollywood, started a dream, wanted to pursue something, but they failed miserably. And their family comes to them and says, you know, you can come back home. You could return to a family that loves you. But they wouldn't. Why? Because of guilt. 
They don't want to face up to the person who they have become. They don't want to come to the realization they become somebody they did not want to become. If they had gone back home, talked to the family, they would remember who they were and thereby facing their guilt. Guilt incapacitates people. They'd rather get drunk, rather do drugs, rather get high than to face the reality of guilt in their own lives. Guilt is a serious thing. It can bring a person to death. Individuals have sought to get rid of guilt in their own lives. They've sought to approach psychiatrists, sought to approach counselors and ask how they may remove guilt from their own lives. There are several things that counselors have counseled people regarding how they may remove guilt. Say, well, maybe you just give it time. If you just give it time, then the guilt will go away or be lessened. They say, perhaps you can make amends. You could do some community work. You can volunteer in the church, volunteer your community, and maybe by doing something that is good, you can make your guilt go away. Others say, maybe you just need to learn to forgive yourself. However, the reality is that none of these things for sure could take away guilt because the source of guilt is still there if the source of guilt is sin. See, only one person can remove guilt, and that person is God himself. See, only God can remove guilt because only God can remove the source of guilt, which is sin. Psalm chapter 103, verse 12 says this, As far as east is from the west, so far has he, that is God, removed our transgressions from us. God wants you to be healed. God wants you to feel that you are at peace with this world. God wants you to have a clear conscience. He wants to remove your transgression from you. He loves you. He wants to restore you. Psalm chapter 103, verse 2 to 4 says the same thing, where the psalmist cries out to God and said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. God wants to crown you with steadfast love and mercy. God wants to relieve you from your guilt. God wants to heal you from your state of mind. All that it takes is that you would confess that you need him. That you would confess that you need him to forgive you. That you would confess that you need his mercy and grace. And that is the step that many people are not willing to take. You see, in the beginning, we're created to be perfect. We're created to be without sin. This is the state of Adam and Eve in the very beginning. They were perfect with God. They were without sin. They were completely holy before God. They had a clear conscience because there was no sin in their own lives. They had no guilt in which... They had to deal with their emotions. That quickly changed when they chose to sin against God. In that very same garden, Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve, say, hey, if you do this, you will have a better life. And Adam and Eve believed in that. As a result of that, they sinned against God. And after they sinned against God, what did they do? They covered themselves, right? With fig leaves. So fig leaves around them sought to cover themselves, hide among fig leaf branches, sought to cover themselves. But that didn't do. Those weren't perfect coverings. Those are just really insufficient coverings. And what God had to do is that God had to find them. God said to Adam and Eve, where are you? He found them. And he gave them a covering that truly can cover, namely the death of an animal. Had an animal killed so the skin of the animal can be used to cover Adam and Eve. That animal was symbolically Christ Jesus himself. Symbolically. It's pointing to Jesus, saying that a life must die. An animal must be sacrificed. A perfect animal has to be sacrificed for the redemption of sin. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, what we find out was that that is symbolizing Jesus Christ, who is the sacrifice that must be made so that our sins can be taken away and our guilt removed. So that's what Jesus did. He took away our sins. He came, lived a perfect life. He was that perfect lamb of God. As he lived that perfect life, he also died on the cross to give his perfect righteousness to us. He died on the cross to give his perfect life to us, exchange his perfect life for ours. Then he paid for the punishment of our sins at the same time. He took the wrath of God from us. The wrath of God was poured upon Jesus at that moment instead of upon us. Jesus became our substitute. But then he also rose again to show us that there's newness, newness of life in him. Who believe unto him, we shall live the life which he lived, namely a resurrected life. We shall live a resurrected life today in our own soul, eventually in eternity, living with him. 
This is the promise of the gospel, promise of Christ in the Bible. Now, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 1 through 10, we're going to read about a particular person who did not take advantage of this promise, who walked away while these promises were available, and he's experiencing the effects of sin one after the other, and he still refused to turn to God. His name is Judas. Judas refused to turn to God, experiencing the effects of sin. We're going to see the effects of sin having a toll on his own soul, and yet he still refused to turn to God until the, they finally killed him. The three effects which we're going to see here, what Judas experienced as the effects of sin that eventually led him to his death. And the first effect is this. Sin leads to guilt, and guilt becomes unbearable. Guilt and sin is unbearable within the soul of a person. We're going to see this in verse 1 through 4. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now we see a story of Judas and, and namely his change of mind and, and, and his interaction here in which he is experiencing his own heart because he is experiencing a certain amount of sorrow in his own soul. But he never ever really turned to Jesus, the Jesus who he knows or he has heard actually who can offer forgiveness for sins. Now Judas has absolutely no excuse because he had heard Jesus talk about this over and over again in terms of what Jesus can do. Jesus promised that he can forgive sins. Throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus forgiving sins all over the place. Remember the story of the paralytic? Paralytic is a man who is in Matthew chapter 9. He was dropped off in front of Jesus. His friends took him up to the ceiling and took him to the roof, rather, broke over the roof, broke over the ceiling, had this man drop down right in front of Jesus, demonstrating their faith that Jesus can heal this man. And Jesus saw the faith of this man and said to this man in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus has the power to forgive sins, had the power to take away guilt. This man was not just forgiven, I mean, just not healed. He's also forgiven of his sins. His guilt was taken away. He had peace before God. In Luke chapter 7, there was another incident of Jesus forgiving sin, and this was the incident where Jesus was confronted by a woman. Now, Jesus had been having lunch in his house with the Pharisee, and the Pharisee, of course, are a religious elite group of people, and they're leading Jesus on and trying to find faults within Jesus. However, this woman came to Jesus in his home, and this woman was known to be a sinner, a prominent sinner, came to Jesus without shame, without reservation. He, she was attached to Jesus. She loved Jesus. She wanted to be by Jesus, so she came to Jesus, not afraid of any other accusation that had been laid against her as she came to this home of the Pharisee. And she started to cry in front of Jesus, weep before Jesus, and put her tears on Jesus' feet, and wipe Jesus' feet with her hair, and anoint Jesus' feet with oil. She was in love with Christ. She wanted Christ to be in her life. And Jesus saw her love for him, said this in Luke chapter 7, verse 48. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus can forgive sins. He could take away guilt. This woman has sinned much, and much of her sins are forgiven. Not only did Jesus forgive sins in the people who we encounter, he also forgave sins of his disciples. One of the people we noticed last week, or actually a couple weeks ago, when we went through this passage in Matthew chapter 26, was a man named Peter. Now, Peter had committed a horrible sin before God. Horrible sin, denying Christ, denying Jesus three times. In that garden, I mean, in that temple ground, or in that courtyard, rather, of the high priest. Denied Jesus three times. Committed a horrible sin before God. Said an oath, saying, I don't know him. Even cursing himself, saying that I shall be cursed if I was telling you something that's wrong. I do not know this man. Truly committed sin before God. But the reality is that Jesus also forgave this man, also forgave Peter. As we said in John chapter 21, in that very encounter between Jesus and Peter, in that seashore Galilee where Jesus invited Peter and the rest of the disciples to have breakfast with him. In that very breakfast, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? 
John chapter 21. Do you love me more than these? Peter says, I love you. I love you. No, you know, Lord, I love you. I'm not perfect, but you know that I love you. In John chapter 21, verse 15, John chapter 21, verse 16 and 17, Jesus again affirmed Peter, saying, feed my lamb, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus forgave Peter, received Peter back in his presence, saying, hey, you are on my team. I am reconciled to you. Be for my business. Be for my sheep. Take care of my church. I trust you. I forgive you. Jesus truly loved Peter, but Peter also truly loved Jesus. This is a relationship which we have with God. None of us are perfect. None of us are going to do things right all the time. In fact, we have plenty of shortcomings. But in Christ, we're forgiven. All it takes is for us to confess to God, God, I love you. God, I'm, I, I want to live for you. I don't do it perfectly, so please forgive me, have mercy on me, and give me grace to continue to seek after you. If we do that, we're forgiven in Christ. We're given power and strength to continue to live for him. This is a promise of the gospel. This is a promise what is given to all who believe in Jesus. It's a promise which is held by the disciples except for one man, Judas. Judas, as we see here, did not love God did not have a true relationship with God. Naturally, he followed Jesus entirely from the wrong motives. Other disciples followed Jesus because they loved Jesus. Judas here is following Jesus because he has something to gain from following Jesus. He thought that Jesus is going to be king. He thought Jesus is going to rule physically on earth right now at this moment when Jesus revealed that he is going to be king in a completely different way. Namely, he's going to be king spiritually, and now it's the time for him to go to the cross, and the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees are going to come. They're going to arrest him. They're going to crucify him. He's going to be flogged, killed. Pretty soon, Judas decided that he didn't want anyone of, anyone, any, any of this. He wanted to escape this. He wanted to escape from this group. He wanted to get out of this before things really turned south. So he had a plan. The plan is to betray Jesus. The plan is to break up this group. The Pharisees, the chief priests, and the scribes are going to come arrest Jesus. This group will be broken. And because this group is going to be broken, then Judas doesn't have to follow Jesus anymore. He can kind of exit the situation without any embarrassment. So Judas is a very moralistic man. Now, of course, he hated Jesus for wasting three years of his life. I'm sure he hated Jesus for that. He wanted to get, get rid of Jesus. He wanted to sell the stock, right, before it really goes plunging down. But his own heart perhaps did not realize that this is going to go the way it does because in verse 1 through 2 and verse 3, what we see is that Jesus is condemned to death and Judas began to regret his action. Verse 1 through 2, it says this, When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. In verse 3, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. It's an interesting change of mind in Judas's heart because Judas really did not like Jesus for wasting three years of his life. But perhaps Judas did not consider Jesus death as something that Jesus deserved. It is normal or actually very um, intuitive to think that Jesus wasn't going to go to the cross. Judas saw all the things that Jesus can do. Jesus can heal the dead. Jesus can calm the storm. And certainly Jesus can get himself out of the situation. Jesus wanted to, but Jesus did not. He submitted himself to death because it was the Father's will. On Judas' part, however, he knew that Jesus was innocent. He followed Jesus for three years, knows that this is an innocent man. He knows that this man is without sin, knows that this man loved people, knows that this man does not deserve death. And when Jesus was condemned, suddenly the conscience of Judas snapped into view. He changed his mind, and now the change his mind in, the, in some of the translations says he repented. This actually is not the word repented. It's the word metamelomai. Repentance is metanoia. That's the Greek word for repentance. It literally means to turn away from your sins and turn to God. That's what repentance means. This word metamelomai just means that he changed his mind. He felt some kind of sorrow, felt some kind of grief, felt some kind of regret that he shouldn't have done this. But there's no relationship with God in this particular change of mind. He did not want to have his relationship with God change. He simply had a change of mind because he failed his own expectation. He's a moralistic man. 
He wanted to meet up to his own morals. And when he failed his own morals, he felt bad about it. Did not want to get Jesus killed. But then again, felt that he perhaps could have done something different. Now, he did not change his character. He simply was a self-centered man. He's self-centered to the end. The reason why he changed his mind is because he felt grief. He felt sorrow. Did not want to experience the grief and the sorrow of failing his own expectation, failing his own morals. But his change was not a change toward God. Now, there are several human illustrations to illustrate this. For example, if you drive a brand new car out of the car lot, right? Brand new car that you just bought. It's like, I love this car. Shining on all sides. Lovely car. And you drive it out and make a right turn. Boom. You hit a pole. How would you feel? Right? That's the feeling that Judas is feeling. It's not necessarily repentance. Just feel bad, right? Man, I wish I haven't done this. That's just what Judas is feeling. I wish I haven't done this. It's not true repentance. It's just a, a regret. It's like you nailing a, a picture or a, trying to nail a nail into the wall and try to hang up a picture, and you found out that this is not the location you want. So you take the nail out, and there's a hole in the wall now. You say, you know what? I feel bad. I made a hole in the wall. People experience those all the time. It's a very human emotion. It is not repentance. It's not turning toward God. It's simply a human regret. I remember talking to an individual who was borrowing money from me. He never gave back what he borrowed, at least not completely. So I finally confronted him saying, hey, what is going on in your life? What's happening? Because I really care for this man. And he said to me he had a gambling problem. He gambled all his family savings away. So he had to borrow money from me, and he was trying to do some more of that gambling so that he could try to make it back. Feel bad. Feel bad about what he did, but it was not true repentance because I shared the gospel with him. He still held on to his pride. He still held on to his self-esteem. He did not turn over his guilt to God. He wanted to make amends with his own ability, with his own efforts, but all that is in vain because he's not turning to God. He's simply keeping that guilt within his own heart. And this is what Judas is doing. He wished what he did did not happen. Now, there are two kinds of sorrows in this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says that there is a godly sorrow and there's a worldly sorrow. For example, actually, let me just read the verse. It says, well, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, where worldly grief produces death. Paul is saying, hey, there's a godly grief, godly sorrow that leads you to repentance, that leads you to turn over your grief to God, and that will actually allow you to receive mercy and grace from God if you choose to do that. But then there's also worldly sorrow coming from failing your own expectation and your own pride. You're keeping in your heart saying, nobody can touch this. This is mine to fix. And when you can't fix it, it produces death. You simply fail your own expectation. You cannot live with yourself. This is what's going to happen to Judas when you finally exact self-retribution. But what God wants for you and me is something more than that something better than that because we might have sin in our own lives our sin should lead us to a sorrow that would turn our guilt before god no matter how much sin we have committed Romans chapter 5 verse 12 20 says this when sin increased grace abounded all the more that means that if you're a murderer if you're a thief you've done committed some horrible things in your life and you choose to believe in god god's grace is going to bound to you even more to cover all that. That's the grace and mercy of God. You are covered like a child is covered. A child may not have sinned greatly in his life or her life, but you as a human being, you as an adult who has sinned greatly, that particular grace of God covers you even more, covers you as a person, covers that child, covers anyone who needs covering because God's grace is infinitely more than any grace which you, I mean, any sin which you can commit. His grace abounds. His grace is greater than what? All our sin. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace greater than all of our sin. That is salvation. That is the story of the gospel that Jesus is trying to teach us. God is trying to teach us, hey, don't hold to your pride. Don't hold to your sin. Don't try to fix it yourself. Turn it over to God and let God fix it for you. Judas, however, did not do that. He's experiencing this unbearable guilt in his own life and his pride, he's going to try to bear it. He's going to try to fix it. 
And we're going to find out how he's going to fix it here in this next passage. You see, as sin is unbearable, as guilt that comes from sin is unbearable, guilt also will be unescapable. Unescapable. We're going to see this in verse 3 to 5. Then when Judas, the betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down a piece of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. What a sad end to Judas when he found out that he cannot escape the guilt which he's experiencing. Now, several attempts have been made by Judas before he hanged himself. Namely, he tried to conduct penance. We see this in verse 3 to 4. Then Judas' betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I mean, he brought back the money. He brought back this amount, saying, hey, that, let's put this back to where it came from. Now, this is something that we can all do in our religious devotion, of course, not Christianity, but all the kinds of religious devotion in the religious institutions of this world. Hey, let's do some community work. Let's give offerings to the church. Right? I've sinned greatly. If I put more money into the offering box, I will feel better about myself. I will have my guilt relieved if I just volunteer, if I help some other people, if I try to make, do some good in this world, I have my guilt relieved. Well, that is not working for Judas, so he actually went to the chief priest. Not only did he bring back the 30 pieces of silver, he also confessed to the chief priest, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, Judas doing this is willing to pay the price for it because for a false witness to say this, he's actually saying, you may punish me according to the law that is in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 18 through 19, he says, the judge shall inquire diligently. If the witness is a false witness, has accused the brother falsely, then he shall do to him as he meant to do his brother. So Judas is a false witness. He's actually bringing Jesus to the chief priests and scribes and saying, hey, this person um, is a sinner and this person deserved to be betrayed, deserved to be brought to you. And Jesus was condemned to death. And so by the fact that Jesus was condemned to death, the false witness that led to the death sentence falsely of this brother himself should be what? Condemned to death for his false witness. The judge should inquire diligently and pay back to the false witness what he had done. So Judas' his own penance, literally he was feeling so horrible at this time for the guilt that he's feeling. He's saying, you know what, if you want to kill me, kill me. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Just do what you think is right. Of course, the chief priests and the elders are not going to do that. Because they will have to take back everything they did to Jesus. So they said in verse 4, what is that to us? You see to it yourself. They didn't want to take it back. They didn't want to pretend that it was wrong. I mean, they didn't want to say that it was wrong. They want to pretend that it never happened. They didn't want to confess that they actually had conducted a false trial. That this whole thing was a farce. They brought... Judas in and say, okay, well, Judas, if you commit a false witness, then we're going to have to bring Jesus back, and the whole Sanhedrin will have to reconvene, and Jesus released, and they weren't willing to do that. So what are they going to do? They said to Judas, what is it to us? See to yourself. I mean, we're not going to be responsible for this. You have a conscience problem. You have a guilt problem. That's you. And by the way, this is what Satan does to each one of us, right? Satan says, hey, if you do this, you'll be rewarded. If you do this, your life will turn out to be better. When he doesn't, become better. We go to Satan and say, what happened to the promise you made? Satan's going to say, what is that to me? You see, to it yourself. So Judas here is experiencing neglect, experiencing ignoring, uh, 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 really being pushed aside by, by the chief priest and scribes for his guilt. I mean, he simply cannot make the guilt go away. He's tried confession. He tried penance. And now what he's going to try is that he's going to act in spite against the system that is evil. We see in verse 5, and throwing down a piece of silver into the temple, he departed. He said, you know what? I don't want any of this. It's really disrespectful for Judas to do this. He's just in front of the temple, in front of the chief priest, and he threw the money back into the temple. And this is not in the courtyard. This is inside of the building of the temple. He threw it all in. He said, you know what? Away from you guys. Away with you guys. I don't want to be associated with you guys anymore. Maybe that will help them feel better. Speak against the system that's evil, the system that is wrong. But it didn't help. 
didn't help because right after he did this, he still had to do something else. In verse 5, after throwing down a piece of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. When the guilt finally cannot go away, when the guilt finally is there and cannot be relieved from his own mind, the only thing that he can think of is to do the last thing, which is to destroy the very source of guilt, namely himself. He has to kill himself. He has to destroy himself in order to relieve the guilt which is killing his own soul. Now, this is all happening because this man is a prideful man. He had all these chances to turn to God. He had all these chances to, to, to come to God and say, God, take away my sin. Confess his sin before God, but he chose not to. He chose to use human relationship, human institution to act out in his own penance. All the things he did were in relationship to human beings, but not to God himself. Why? Because he's a prideful man. He's trying to make amends his own character, amends his own ability, amends his own works. But he's not going to turn to God. He's not going to confess in the same way that we confess, namely that we will humble ourselves before God and say, God, I've done wrong. I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Now, if Judas is the New Testament example of suicide, then the Old Testament example of suicide will be by a man named Ahithophel. Remember Ahithophel? Ahithophel was advisor to David. He was extremely wise extremely bright. Even David was concerned about the counsel of this man when David was running away from Absalom. But as Hithophel, what he did was that he decided to support Absalom when Absalom chose to take the throne away from David. When David finally made a comeback and said, this throne is mine, and Hithophel knows that David is going to come back and be king again, what did Hithophel do? He saddled his donkey in 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 20, 23, saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city, he set his house in order, and he hanged himself. See, every single person that betrayed David had to appear before David. I don't know if you read 2 Samuel. They had to appear before David, and, and David has to, had to give account before David. What did you do, right? Remember that story? And David gave grace and mercy to all of them. This man didn't want that. He saddled his donkey, went off his own home, and set his house in order, and hanged himself, killed himself. Why? Because he did not want to face up to the reality that he was a betrayer. I mean, if he had won, if Absalom had won, then he wouldn't have to face this. He would have been justified, right? The history is written by the victors. But now that he's not the victor, he's going to have to appear before the king. Now, we know that Jesus is going to be the victor. So each one of us, we sin against God. We have to appear before God. The question is, will you humble yourself before God? Will you humble yourself and confess your sins before God? And not hold on to it to your death. David himself was the opposite example of Hithophel as he sinned greatly before God as well. Remember his sins before God? He sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba. He sinned by killing Uriah. He sinned greatly. But what did he do in Psalm chapter 51, verse 4? He said this to God. Against you, that is God, and you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's confessing sins before God. He's turning it over to God. He's not hiding. He's not justifying it. He's not saying that, you know what, I'm going to somehow make some excuses. Make Uriah deserve to die. I mean, we do that at times, do we not? You know, we did something wrong. We're trying to think about it in our mind. You know what, maybe this person actually deserved it. You know, we, we could think of all, I mean, that's a human, that's a human mind, right? Like we want to think of an excuse to, to kind of justify what we did. But David actually doesn't do that. He's saying, hey, against God, against you, I've done what is evil in your sight. And he's not just confessing one sin. Judas here is confessing one sin, right? He's saying, hey, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. This is sin that's bringing him guilt. But what about all the other sins that Judas did? What about all the other sins? What about stealing from the bag, right? What about lying to the disciples? What about, be, you know, doing all the other things, things like, like, like lying to Jesus and being a hypocrite for three years? Those are sins. Those didn't bother him. That's why penance don't work because penance is only focused on one particular sin. While the reality is that you've sinned far more than you ever know or realize. So therefore, when David confesses sins before God, he said this in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Say, hey, I'm a sinner. 
I have a sin nature in me. I have sinned more than I know even I can conceive and to understand. But then with his solution, when he prayed, his solution was this. Psalm chapter 51, verse 7, he said, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He's saying, God, I don't even know the extent of my own sins. But the reality is this. I just want to be clean. I just want to be washed clean. I just want to be made whiter than snow. And you could do that for me. You can cleanse me. Hyssop is, is, is the branch that is dipped in blood and sprinkled upon an object to make it holy. And say, purge me with that very same object, and I shall be clean. If you wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. It doesn't matter what I've done. All that matters is if I'm willing to turn my sins to you, willing to confess to you my sins, not just this sin with Bathsheba, not just this sin with Uriah, but all of my sins could be forgiven through Jesus, who is a sacrifice for our sins. Requires humility. Now, when Judas experienced this, he did not turn to God. We can, though. When sin becomes unbearable, when sin becomes inescapable, when sin is, is, is placing, putting such a pressure on, on our own soul, we could turn to God and let God wash it all clean and take it away. That's why Judas was a man who missed many opportunities. But if you miss all these opportunities, there was one final effect which sin will have on you, which is this. Your guilt, your sin will finally become unforgivable. So it begins with unbearableness of it. And it becomes unescapable, and lastly, it becomes unforgivable. We're going to see it in verse 6 to 10. But the chief priest, taking pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since blood money. They took counsel and brought with them, or bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what has been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, It took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. They gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So we see the end of Judas in this case, or actually what happened after the end of Judas in this case, because there's a whole situation about, about the field of blood, and we'll talk about it in this passage. Now, the field of blood is called the field of blood for a particular reason, because it was bought with what? Blood money. Blood money. We see it in verse 6, and the chief priest taking the piece of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Now they're meaning themselves that this is blood money. They're meaning themselves that this is a farce, right? This trial is a farce that, Ju- that Jesus was condemned unfairly because if Jesus was fairly tried, if Jesus was a sinner and he should be condemned to death, and this would not be blood money, right? This would be righteous money. But the fact that this blood money goes to show that these priests know that they have conducted wrong. So by their own admission, they know they have condemned someone to death unfairly, unjustly. They're really focused on something that's very minute here. They don't want to put the money back in the treasury, (laughs) but they're willing to crucify a person who's innocent. Straining out a gnat and swallowing what? A camel. That's what Jesus' condemnation to these Pharisees are in Matthew chapter 23. You're focused on the minor, but you refuse to major on the major. So what did they do? On verse 7, to counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. So this particular field called the field of blood, which is also a burial place for strangers, is a potter's field. Namely, it's a field which, which is uh, kind of like a trash dump. People who have broken potteries will throw into this field. This field is kind of unused. People don't even go there. And they bought this field for a burial place for strangers. Namely, there are people who travel to Jerusalem, and they die somewhere in Jerusalem, and they don't have a place to be buried, and the body is there rotting. Well... For the health concern of the people in Israel, they had to find a place to bury them. So what did they do? They bought this field so they could bury the strangers, a place where the no-names are buried. It's called the field of blood in verse 8 because why? Because it's bought with blood money. It's bought with blood money. And it says in verse 8, therefore this field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now Matthew wrote the book of Matthew around 60 or 70 A.D. So for 30 years from the beginning of the time where Judas, when Jesus was crucified, when Judas sold Jesus, to the day where Matthew wrote the book of Matthew, this field has been called the field of blood. 
Now, people very quickly realize, this evidence that people very, very quickly realize that they have been led astray by the Pharisees and chief priests and the scribes. Now, the chief priests, they went through this legal process. They say, you know, guys, trust me. Jesus went through this legal process. He should be condemned. And so crowd began to get behind the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests. And they were crying out, right, to Pilate saying, crucify this man. But very quickly, they knew that this is a farce because in Acts chapter 2, verse 3 to 36 to 37, Peter preached a message and said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, condemned them for or confronted them for their act of condemning Jesus, crucifying Jesus, and what happened to people. People were what, verse 37, cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? I mean, very quickly, even after Jesus was crucified, after Jesus died and resurrected, people knew that this was wrong. They knew. So therefore, they called this field the field of blood because it was purchased with blood money. Not only was this field of blood a field of blood because it was purchased with blood money, it was a field of blood because it's a field that Judas died on. Acts chapter 1, verse 18 through 19, it says this, now this man, that is Judas, acquired the field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in own language, Akadema, that is, field of blood. And what happened to Judas is this. Um, he went to the field. He hanged himself on that field. Whether that particular hang was before this field was bought by the blood money or afterward, it really doesn't matter. He hanged himself on this field. This field was uncared for field. This field was a field that nobody wants to go to. So his blood would, I mean, his body would just hang there for days, swinging in the wind. And he was beginning to rot. Bacteria began to grow within the body, and the rope began to break because it was just hanging there. And finally, the rope broke. His body fell headlong, hits the rock. Bowels gushed out, blood everywhere, and therefore is called the field of blood. And Jesus, or, or the, the apostle writers, or Luke is writing Acts chapter 6, or chapter 1, also in Matthew chapter 27, Matthew wrote it. Both are pointing to the fact that this particular field is a demonstration of the cursedness and damnation of this individual, Judas, because he refused the grace and mercy of God and held down his pride, even though he should have repented. Refused, because he refused, because he experienced his guilt and refused to turn to God, he will be damned. His guilt will eventually be unforgivable. Now, this is something that we all need to learn from. How do we deal with our guilt? How do we deal with our sin? You know, John Blanchard, one of the writers, he said this. He said, in eternity, and he gave a Wonderful illustration. He said, in eternity, perhaps it were people who go to God and say, God, you haven't experienced all that I've experienced. You haven't seen, you haven't, you haven't been, been seen, I don't want to tell you, I have been uh, hurt by individuals. I have been lied to by individuals. I've gone through these horrible experiences growing up. So therefore, if, because I've gone through these things, the things I've done should be forgiven. Many people are going to go to God and say these words, and God's going to say, well, what have you done with your sins? What have you done with your guilt? Certainly other people should be judged for their sins against you, but what about your sins? What about your guilt? Have you suppressed them? Have you hid them in your heart? Have you pridefully said this is mine and this is mine to deal with and you haven't turned it to God? See, Judas is a very moralistic man. I don't think Judas is that far away from each one of us. I really don't. I mean, he felt bad about what he did. He, he's a moralistic man. He's not an axe murderer. He's not a rapist. Not a, other things that are considered, he have not done other things that are considered worse in this world, but he's a moralistic man. He, he's trying to get away from Jesus. Some of, so, and, and really he's condemned on the fact that he is prideful. He's holding on to his sins, holding on to his guilt, and he refused to turn it over to God. The question is, what do we do? How do we justify ourselves? Do you justify yourself in our own mind saying, you know what? Maybe I'm excusable for doing this because of my situation, because of my life. Or do you justify yourself by your own conduct, justify yourself by your own penance, justify yourself by your volunteer work, justify yourself by your service, justify yourself by giving to the church financially? None of these things would justify you. The only, thing, the only person that could justify you is God. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 26 says, God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's the only one who could justify you. You need to be completely perfect. Your works don't justify you. You need to be completely holy before God. The only person that can make you holy as God is holy is Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it said, Jesus himself bore our sins on his body or in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Not by your own works. Not by you making it up. Not by you doing good things. Not by your volunteer work. By your trust and faith in Christ and by his wounds you are being healed. So last portion here in verse 9 through 10, it says this. It says, this was fulfilled what has been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So here's a prophecy. God is saying this. Your sins and you denying God and your betrayal of God, if you choose not to believe in God, will be used as a tool for his glory. That's what happened to Judas. See, people are going to make their choices. Some people are going to deny God. Some people are going to be for God and believe in God. But all things in the world are going to point to God's glory. God is not going to allow anything to happen in this world that does not somehow work to the end of his glory. And the question is, which side are you going to be on? Are you going to be on the side of destruction, where that destruction and damnation is used for the glory of God? Or are you going to be on the side of salvation, where you can praise God forever and ever in his glory? That choice is yours. Judas chose the other side, but for us, we don't have to choose the side of Judas. We could be on the side where we benefit from the salvation story of God. God will be glorified. He's going to be glorified in the damnation of the sinners. He'll be glorified in the salvation of sinners. Either way, he'll be glorified, and the choice is yours, which side we'll be on. See, the only way to choose to be on the right side is to repent of our sins. That means that we must turn over our guilt to God. That's very simple. That's not, yeah, that must be done every day, amen. And that must be done in our heart, not seeking to justify ourselves, but seeking to let God be the salvation of who we are. The reality is that only Jesus can remove sins. We must repent before God. And repentance looks like this. It means that we're going to let it all out before God. Not going to conceal it. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. So we're not going to conceal our transgressions. But what we're going to do? We're going to confess it and forsake them. And then we'll receive mercy. Confess to God. Forsake our sins turn away from our sins, have true repentance in our hearts, not just feeling bad, right, but actually turning to God with true repentance, and we will retain or obtain mercy. When we see sins in our lives, what do we do? True repentance is turning away. James chapter 1, verse 25, it says this, but the one who looks intently into perfect law of freedom and continues to do so, not being a forgetful hearer, but effective doer, he will be blessed in what he does. The context of this is this, that you will look in the mirror, see something's wrong with yourself. You say, you know what, God, I want this out of my life. I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to actually make a choice for God. I'm not going to keep sin in my life. I'm going to turn and so to God in such a way that my heart is offered to God and my life and everything I do is going to be for him. I'm going to turn away from that sin and begin to live for Jesus. That's what true repentance looks like. As we do so, there's going to be joy and happiness in our lives as well. You see, guilt is something that God does not want us to experience. It really isn't. In Christ, your guilt should be taken away. Now, some of us feel guilt because we don't understand the full impact of the gospel. We haven't really obtained the full impact or lived out the full impact of the gospel. Living, living in the gospel in our hearts, we feel guilt unnecessar unnecessarily. I understand that. But in Christ, if we understand that Christ has taken away all of our guilt, all of our sin, then we should be able to live in a way that is of peace and satisfaction in our own soul. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been made his children. We should have peace in him. We should have satisfaction in him. Guilt is not something you should experience. In fact, by faith, that guilt should be removed from your life. It should. 
if you have any question with that, any struggle with that, I encourage you to come and talk to me, talk to Pastor Dakota, so that we could actually encourage you how to apply the gospel in your life so that you could actually believe that Jesus Christ had indeed paid for that so that you don't have to experience that in your soul again. So Jesus here is telling us the effect of our sins. There are three effects. Sin brings unbearable guilt. Sin brings inescapable guilt. Sin brings unforgivable guilt. But all that can be taken away in who? In Christ, in Jesus. So this is the end of a two-part series called The Tale of Two Men. If you've been with us in the previous sermon, we were studying Peter. Peter is the man that Matthew talked about at the end of Matthew chapter 26 when he was describing the denial of Peter in that very passage. And then Matthew turned to Matthew chapter 27 and began to describe Judas. He's making a contrast between these two men. One, denied Jesus. One, sinned greatly against Jesus but was forgiven. The other one sinned greatly against Jesus but was not. The only difference between those two men is that one loved God, one wanted God, one sought after God, one was humble before God, turned over his sins to God, while the other one, namely Judas, kept it to himself in his own prideful state. Which one are you? See, Peter is a name to be cherished. Many of us name or have named our family members or have friends who have named themselves Peter or who have been named Peter. Judas, well, some of us may not have any friends whose name are Judas. You might not know anybody who's named Judas. In fact, you might not even name your dog Judas. Why? Because Judas was prideful. He held on to his sins to the point of death. This is a great lesson for us. Be like Peter. Don't be like Judas. If you want to be like Peter, if, if the goal is for us to be like Peter, that means that we're to humble ourselves, reach out to God for salvation, confess our sins to him, and let him be the cleansing hyssop for our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you, Lord, for this passage in which we are now understanding more and more so the temptation of our souls to keep to our own guilt. Is unhealthy for us, and it only lands in eternal damnation. We pray that we would not do that. We pray that we would embrace you, embrace the Savior who forgives us, who cleanses us, like Peter did. Salvation is within our grasp. It is right there next to our hearts. Let us, Lord, cry out to you today. Jesus, thank you for making salvation possible. We love you, Lord. As Peter says, I love you. Not as much as you love me, but I love you. We cry out with the same heart. And Lord, because we say that, because we have that relationship with you, you say to us too that you love us and you keep us the command to feed our sheep, feed our lamb. You call us to yourself. We thank you, Lord, for calling us onto your team. Lead us, Lord, by the power of spirit to think of ways in which we can confess our sins before you. Let us be away from our guilt, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.